everybody so this is katie moon and you are listening to the mad moon podcast which is all about healthcare professionals normally but i'll get to that point um and we talk all things mental health and all things taboo so the reason i said normally is this is a bit of a special episode so we are now into series four episode one how very exciting i had no idea this would happen um, we've had over 5,000 listens, which is amazing, even if most of them probably are me, Sam, and my friends just pressing play and then not actually listening to it, but you know, um, that's my phone going off now. So, this episode is actually, oh how funny, Ralph just messaged me, that's who the ping was. So, this episode is Ralph, who is not a healthcare professional, but he had a traumatic life event he had a few traumatic life events and it's hard to explain really he explains it and articulates it way better than I do so he had a physical trauma and a mental health experience slash trauma so we talk about all of those now as you've probably um worked out by now Ralph is actually a patient now when I say patient he's not one of mine he's never been a patient of mine um, I don't think I know where in the world he is. I've never worked at any of the hospitals he works in. And if you can tell by the way I'm waffling and rambling, you can tell that I was quite nervous about this episode. Um, but really, it's no different to talking to a stranger on the train or just anybody who has been a patient and ended up or found themselves in the healthcare system. So I just thought it was really important and I just was really interested in hearing someone's experience from the other side um i am now obviously in the healthcare system as a patient going through my ivf treatment and i just thought it'd be really nice to hear the flip side i mean it's no secret that mental health funding is appalling and services are lacking they were cut so I'm sure you're not going to be surprised by some of what Ralph shares. However, I think it's still really important to listen to the people who've experienced it firsthand. So I will stop saying um and waffling and just let you listen to me and Ralph talk about his experiences with healthcare. So as always, please remember, here's my favourite bit. There may be some triggering topics and colourful language. And that's it for now. So enjoy listening to me and Ralph. Hello, Ralph. Thank you so much for coming on the Mad Moon podcast. You're welcome. I'm pleasured. So this is a, I want to say a strange episode, but that is the wrong word. So this is a very different episode because you are my first guest who is actually coming on to share a patient journey that's right yeah hopefully anyway yeah. hopefully your uh, your first patient story so a different perspective entirely I imagine from um you know almost the other side isn't it I'm on the other side of what you guys were looking at so it'll be interesting yeah definitely and I've got so many questions spinning around in my head already so usually I would start the episode with how do we know each other but we don't we just like most people that come on the show lately it's just through social media um and usually then I would start with, so tell me how you got into healthcare and why. And you didn't want to get into healthcare. And no, that wasn't intention. <laughs> not intentional. <laughs> and the why, I just want to explain to the listeners. So Ralph is not going to share the circumstances surrounding his injuries, but we're just going to talk about his experiences as a patient. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. I'd say um, it, it will it will come around eventually. Um, but, you know, at the moment, obviously, with the stage I'm at in my journey, um, it's just such a mammoth topic that I'm sort of breaking things down a little bit. But I've spoken a little bit about my injuries uh, on my channel already. So I'm happy to sort of elaborate more on those. Yeah, I mean, if you're just happy to start wherever you're happy to start, really, with how you became an inpatient in hospital and what that journey was like yeah absolutely yeah so basically um this incident occurred and i suffered substantial injuries so the the list of injuries to be precise i'd broken my jaw in three places 
um, and my teeth and my gums were like flap, flapping in the wind type thing. I had a two inch laceration on the back of my head. Um, all the ribs on the right hand side had broken with a minimum break of three per rib. Ribs two and three and the pec major were gone. Um, my liver had a two inch tear. The right hand side of my diaphragm was split and detached. Um, I'd nicked the artery just up in my shoulder as well, um, only by a couple of mil, but that was spurting. And obviously a collapsed lung. I had a massive hole in my lung on the right lung and uh, my right femur was cracked. So that was all my injuries. So it was safe to say that, um, you know, I was in a, a real bad way. And I think actually I lost about four pints of blood. Um, so it was real touch and go, but that's the actual injuries. Um, and that's how I came about and moved to ICU obviously straight away. But I had to obviously be delicately dealt with. Um, and they actually wanted to airlift me to a, a specialist hospital but they said that I wouldn't survive the journey. So it was just pure luck that seven days prior, a brand new cardiothoracic unit had just opened up in the local area that were available to treat me. Otherwise I wouldn't have made the helicopter journey um, because I believe I, I stopped breathing. I, I think I, I choked um, within 60 seconds really to initially. So yeah, it was, it was touch and go. And um, that's how I ended up in, in intensive care. So pretty extensive injuries um, yeah I mean I had a, a football size hole in uh under my armpit on the right hand side um and obviously I said the pec major had gone but obviously also a lot of the skin had gone as well and it just sort of become a football size hole and you could actually I've got medical um photography mm. of the actual injuries and you can see just to you can see my sternum there's nothing in between it's just you can see my sternum and that's one thing I actually forgot to mention that all my ribs are detached from the sternum as well so it was not that it was only broken but they were literally the whole right hand side had just been shattered yeah I've seen the pictures on your social media and just for anyone listening um I will link to Ralph's social media so you can get all of the details and if you are like me I think a lot of medical people are interested in seeing things like that because luckily we don't see them often in our career um yeah it's insane i've never seen anything like it the the images they do say sensitive content uh, just as a, a warning to people so you know if you click on it it really is a football size hole completely yeah. through ralph's body um uh I mean, actually, those photos are the, the kind of the tamer clinical photos that I've got. I mean, obviously, I've got ones where they've got the clamps and they're opening me up, you know, to expose my liver, to expose the bits and bobs that they need to get to. I haven't quite posted some of those yet because I feel that they're quite extreme. But if there's a call for it, I'm happy to show it. But I mean, all that's swimming around in my head at, at the moment is there must have been obviously a first time that you saw those images. So do you, do you remember how that felt? Do you remember what the first time was like? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was weird. I mean, it almost was surreal. It didn't feel like it was me. You know, I looked at, it was a lifeless body on the table almost. And, you know, I've been uh, kept alive by ventilation and other means. And it just was so surreal to, to look back and think, think that that was actually me. Um, and it actually was quite saddening because during this period of time, which, you know, we'll probably discuss later on, there was obviously, there's real shift in my mental health. And I didn't feel like I was that person anymore. So it almost was like I was looking at something completely different. And now I found myself lost, I had still had substantial injuries. And I just didn't really know how to get back to being that, you know, that guy that was laid out on that bed there dying. Um, so it was a real, real hard time when I first saw them. And how long were you in hospital for? Because in my head, I'm thinking, must have been there for months and months, if not longer. Right, this this will shock you. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to provide proof via medical records or anything like that, if anyone doesn't believe me. Oh, you um, went home the next day? No, no, I just I had a cup of paracetamol, walked it off. Um, <laughs> no, no, 15 days in total, I was in hospital, 15 Sorry. days. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm happy to provide proof people, you know, think that that's insane and it's unbelievable, but that's what actually happened. Um, I, you know, I can also provide proof of all the injuries and I've got the pictures, I've got the actual medical notes and records that were kept in ICU. Um, but what had happened was, is that my initial injury, I, I, I felt, I lay there for two days on my own, basically, and I had a tracheostomy in, 
I was on the life support. I couldn't talk. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink, etc. Um, and I couldn't move. I was I was laid out, not flat on my back because obviously all my abdominals are torn, but I was almost sort of in the in between sat up and laid down, 45 degree angle or something like that. And I just had to lay there on my back and I could not move anything. You know, I, I just felt so weak. And for two days I laid there on my own um, because my father was too drunk to uh, come in and, and, and see me. He wasn't allowed in. Um, so I lay there for two days on my own. And this went on for a period of about a week where I felt really sorry for myself. And I begged the ICU, the ICU nurses to turn the machine on. And I'd done this because I'd, I'd now got a whiteboard and I was able to sort of write little notes and communicate in a way. Um, and, I, and I begged them for days, look, just please just turn it off. I can't take the pain. I was crying. I was in tears. And naturally, obviously, they, they didn't turn it off. And after about a period of seven days, it got to the point of self-realization. And I thought, right, I'm not going to die. They're not going to turn it off. So either I sink or I've got to just try and get myself out of this massive hole I'm in now. And that's what I decided to do. And I put my, my everything into it. And I've said so many times I could never do it again. And I just put all my mental energy and my physical strength into getting better and setting targets day by day. And those targets are minute. You know, it might be to um, come off the ventilator for 30 seconds, you know. And I remember the first time I did that, it was like all systems panic. Um, lungs just didn't work. And I thought I was going to die. But set little goals like that you know and then it would be to um you know eventually try and start sitting up more on the edge of the bed in a chair stand with three people and I just took tasks day by day and uh, and I set myself goals and all the time I reached them because I had such a drive in my mind that I had to now almost prove people wrong because they they said to my family he'll be dead within the next few hours I had the priest come down and read me my last rites and the consultant surgeon of the unit said there's no way that he's going to survive. Um, and it was almost sort of, I wanted to prove them wrong now. And I thought, if I'm not going to die, I'm going to prove you all wrong, that this is possible. And so after 15 days, um, you know, I pushed so hard to go home. That's what I wanted. And, and that's what I got. But actually, I regretted it. And why did you regret it? Because I was, but I was so driven with this idea of getting better and proving everyone wrong and being released from hospital because that was, you know, seen as a massive sort of pivotal point for me. If I'm out of hospital, I'm, I'm on the I'm on the road to recovery. You know, I'm doing really well, and that's why I wanted to push for it so much. But the reality was that in hospital, I had immensely incredible care, and I had things available to me that weren't available at home. And it was such an uncomfortable experience because I had to sleep sitting up in a chair and it just wasn't a hospital environment. And suddenly I didn't have the help of the nurses. I didn't have, you know, the, the comfortability and everything that I needed. I didn't have the support. Mm. Um, and I regretted it so much because it made my life just so difficult. You know, it just made everything so much harder without nurses there to help me. See, it's just in my selfish nurse brain it's gone straight to I'm just so happy that you described your care as being amazing that it's just so nice to hear that absolutely I'm, I mean I'm under no illusions that without you guys you know I'd be dead that, that that's 110 percent and and I've still got memories you know and, and a lot of the trauma the memories are, are hard to remember but I still remember nurses names I still remember the ones that looked after me I still remember you know conversations that we had and etc and I even went back after and, and thanked them all for everything they did for me because the level of care that was provided was just un un unbelievable. And the fact that, you know, I, I, it's like you see the signs up, don't you? Abuse won't be tolerated and all that kind of thing. I just can't fathom it because, you know, the, the work that goes into looking after people and helping people, and it's even current now with my father-in-law who's in hospital, it's amazing. And it's, it's nothing short of, you know, it should just be recognised so, so much more. Oh, that's so nice. And my, my background's cardiothoracic intensive care. That's, oh. that's my, my um, clinical background. See, so, this is like, you know, the stars aligning. <laughs> but yeah, so having seen your injuries, I still just cannot believe you went home after 15 days. I mean, was there obviously intense physiotherapy? Were you offered rehabilitation? Yeah. So, so most of that time was actually spent on intensive care. I spent two or three days on a ward and that was that. Um, 
And I remember having conversations, you know, that I was so driven and physios, the physio said to me, we've, we've never, ever had a patient like you. You know, I was like so stoked about it because it made me feel like, you know, I'm, I'm doing really well. And I guess I was, I guess I progressed in a way that was just incredible considering the injuries. I mean, I think, you know, I was ventilated and one of my huge goals to have was to have a Swedish nose. It was just a massive, massive goal of mine because that was a progression from being on the ventilator. And I thought, if I can get the Swedish nose. And every day I asked, I said, is there any, am I coming off it today? And, oh, we'll see, we'll see, you know. And every day my, uh, my hopes were dashed. Oh, we'll have to do it tomorrow now. We'll have to do it tomorrow. And I can't describe how crippling that emotion is in a patient. You know, you're, you're, I'm looking at, like, you know, someone like yourself and you've got your life my life in your hands and I'm begging you, you know, please let me go on this and, and to have it dashed all the time. It's, it's, it's horrible, but obviously you guys know best. And sometimes I think my head was further than where my body actually was. Yeah. And you know what? It, it is rare to see that it does happen. You do have patients who, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you would have been in long enough to have required CPAP. Does that ring a bell? Oh, to be honest might no, not I, is that a suck is that a suction oh no sorry, it's completely it's different of, it's a type of ventilation where it forces pressure into your lungs to keep the bases open I, no I, probably not that. i'm not sure if you would have wouldn't have had it with a collapsed lung and you know my clinical yeah kind of a bit rusty and i've been in cardiothoracic for about six and a half years now but <laughs> yeah yeah um, but yeah you normally get patients who are like desperate to do longer and they're like yeah like i know i want to come off it don't put me back on the ventilator i can do it i can mm. do it but yeah. even though they feel physically well their their blood results their blood gases and things like that their numbers are kind of coming down and yeah too low just, you're like we, we don't want to push you too hard you need to recover yeah let's go again tomorrow um but, but this is the thing with it i think people you know, unless you've experienced it, it's so difficult, but the reality is that when you've been on a ventilator, even for a short space of time, your body becomes really reliant like that. Mm -hmm. And when that gets switched off, you would be shocked because people think it's natural to breathe. It's just, it just, it doesn't, honestly, it, you, you're sat there thinking I've, I've breathed for so many years and now I can't breathe and you start to panic. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's horrendous. So it's not all it's cracked up to be coming off the ventilator because at least then you're comfortable, aren't you? You know, you sat there, it's, it's your oxygen's up and you're happy, but yeah it's all in the mind all in the mind yeah it's hard work and especially through covid as well it's been difficult watching so many people struggle to breathe i mean obviously I've, well i say obviously it's not obvious to you because we've just met but i haven't been on a ventilator but i've seen many a patients on them and when yeah. they're weaning them off them um yeah so it's really interesting to hear a patient's kind of memories and reflection um yeah absolutely i mean you know you guys know best and that's that but as a patient you know you get caught up in it don't you and obviously you're on a lot of different medications which skew your views i think on different things and and almost give you you know like a an unseen armor that you think that oh yeah i can do it the reality is you're so weak you know and if you're in intensive care regardless of how well you think you are you're not well because you're in intensive care that's just the bottom line so you just got to toe the line and and it takes as long as it takes. But fortunately for me, I was young, I was fit and, you know, it knocked two stone off me in a week, but I survived and, you know, recovered in that. In, well, I didn't recover in that time frame, but I was out of hospital in that time frame. So yeah, it was a lot going on. Yeah. And that you mentioned about losing two stone that quickly. I don't think people really appreciate either how rapid muscle mm. wastage is. Like muscle <laughs> wastage is rapid it is a hundred percent you know and as, as as funny as it is the first memory i i had an out-of-body experience memory but that's a different thing entirely but medically wise the first time that i remember waking up in hospital i had two nurses stood at the end of my bed uh, i was in icu at this time and i was set up on all the machines and everything and i sort of looked up like you know really because i'd been on ketamine and and, and all sorts and the nurse said to the other one, oh, he's, he's really muscly, isn't he? And uh, she said, oh, well, he's just done this course, so he must have to have something about him. And then I was sort of like that, looking, and then the other one said, well, tomorrow you can tell him that half his chest missing. And that was it, boom, my head went down, I went back to sleep. But that was the first ever memory that I had. And then literally within, you know, sort of seven to 14 days, I was two stone lighter and, you know, I could barely, I, well, I couldn't, I couldn't stand. I had to learn to walk again. Um, 
you know, the muscle wastage was huge. Obviously, the crack um, on this side, although it was only hairline, was still obviously an issue. Um, and, you know, I, I, I managed to get to a point where I could walk with support for short distances. Um, and that was that. But it just kept building after that. And within, I think, four to six weeks, I, I went on my first kind of walk slash jog. Uh, what not very far but I mean you know that was what I was just still pushing even then still pushing um, and I think at the time I was wearing the the vacuum bags so my wound was being sucked to the surface so I had to walk around this little man bag that was like yeah. all the time and it used to suck my it was trying to suck the tissues the soft tissues to the surface um, so I had to walk around with that for a little while it was a bit embarrassing but you know I was still alive so I can't complain too much. So how long ago were these injuries how long ago did this happen? Oh God, about what, 14 years ago now, I'd say, 13 or 14 years ago. Yeah, a, a, quite, a, quite a long time. Um, but obviously I'm, I'm left with uh, physical disability. I mean, the other thing that they said to me was that I'd be unfortunately left with severe chronic pain for the rest of my life. And I was told that, I mean, the consultant that I had, although he wasn't an, an expert in his field, his bedside manner was terrible. And he just basically came to me, you know, and I was in ICU and he said to me that your career's over, um, you're gonna need carers for the rest of your life in and out and you're probably gonna be on a pain drug management thing for the rest of your life because you're gonna have chronic pain for the rest of your days. And then he said, you're probably only gonna be, you're only gonna have one third of the movement in the right arm and you'd have, you've lost two thirds of the capacity of your right lung. Um, and he, he just hit me with that all at once, you know, where this is all fresh and that it really crushed me a little bit. Um, but I think that was partly the driving force of why I wanted to get better so quick as well. Mm. And, you know, I just think I just pushed through things and I did it too quick. Now, looking back, I regret it, but I think I pushed my body too hard and, you know, my body was broken. Um, and I just, my head was just way ahead of where, where I was, unfortunately. But I'm really glad you've brought up. Um, doctor's bedside manner as well because I've, I've had a lot of doctors junior doctors medics um, on the podcast and there is like this generalization that their bedside manner is appalling and their mm -hmm. bedside manner is wonderful and we're you know these angels and we're caring and compassionate and it it's one of them where it's such a shame to hear that you, you did have that experience but the reason that generalization is there is because I think it, it's it's true it's still yeah absolutely yeah, it's still true for a lot of doctors especially like you say the the old school you know specialist in their field yeah yeah absolutely that yeah I just can't imagine how that wouldn't have had a massive impact on your mental health. yeah I mean it, I think a bedside manner is something that gets really underplayed and it's, it's it's vital you know bedside manner is vital because ultimately you know without your you guys there I mean I'm quite a self-motivated person um, and I was very self-motivated in, in these instances because I had to be, but you guys were certainly supporting me in the background and the motivation and me doing these things wouldn't have been possible without the support. You guys giving me the right encouragement, you know, I was begging you to die for Christ's sake. So, you know, you, you've got to, you can't come back with me with like, well, you ain't. So, you know, the bedside man is always there. Whereas the doctor, he, although he saved my life with the help of many others, he's just very matter of fact you know he's he's one of I don't know how many patients he's going to see that day he doesn't really care about me he doesn't know me you know he knows me on paper this is his injuries this is what you know I've done to fix him but that's it and that's where it ends and I think it's just so so matter of fact it felt so unpersonal and I just felt like he really wasn't really trying with me you know I was a lost cause you know he already it seemed like he felt embarrassed that he'd have told everyone I was going to die and I didn't that's how it came across it was like he seemed annoyed that I had proved him wrong. And then now he had to like almost piss on my parade in a way that excuse my French, because he was wrong in those instances and he couldn't be wrong again. That's how it felt. But whether whether that was the case, I don't know. That's just my personal take on the situation of how he was with me. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to say. I, I mean, I don't think there's ever an excuse to treat a patient any way other than with complete you know respect and dignity and it's something I talk a lot about on the podcast and the reason I've started it is because a lot of healthcare professionals well I'd say all but I might be wrong 
um, experience something called compassion fatigue, where it's not fatigue in the sense that they're sick of being compassionate. It's not, it's more than that. It's almost like a compassion depression where they yes. just don't have it in them anymore to be kind and empathetic and understanding. No, I, I, I get that completely. That, like, distortion of reality because they're so used to seeing such traumatic, horrendous injuries and things day in, day out for, for decades. That's their bread and butter. They just forget that this huge injury and trauma it has changed your life forever. Mm. They forget that because to them, yeah. it's just an adult. 100%. I mean, I, I, there was one occasion, and I've got to say, I, I'm, I don't think it was a nurse. I think it was a healthcare assistant, I think. But obviously, my memory of the time is a little bit jittery. And that's the only one occasion that I had a negative experience. And obviously, I had um, a catheter fitted and during the night things have happened and there was blood up the catheter and she coming in the morning to clean me and, and bed bath me all that and she ripped me she honestly belittled me she almost like it almost felt like she was slapping my hand she was going you don't do that again you don't do that again you hurt yourself that's the exact word she said you know so I'm not mimicking anything that was her exact words that's how it come across and you know I felt so small because there where I was you know a grown man I'm laid out on the bed I can't, I can't hold my bladder. I can't hold my bowels. And, you know, I'm having to get washed in a bed and then I'm almost, almost being reprimanded for something that's out of my control. And it was probably one of the, the moments that I felt the smallest in my life, um, you know, because it was just such a personal thing. And I just sort of just been ripped apart for it, you know, and I couldn't even speak back. I couldn't even say anything. I was just, I had to just take it because I was on a tracheostomy. So yeah, that, that, but that was the only occasion. But it still it stays with you. You've remembered. Sorry, you, it stays with you. Doesn't it does it? do. Yeah, you've remembered that. You've remembered yeah, that conversation. I'll never ever never forget that. I'll never forget that. But then you know, I don't want that to get overtaken. I don't speak about that often because, you know, the, the amount of kindness that was shown to me far outweighs that. You know, that is almost. I don't want that to taint anything else. So I, I seldom seldom talk about it because the reality is that overall the care that I received was you know second to none, and I don't want a little story like that to to taint the whole other rest of the picture. But you know I still remember it, and I think I'll, I'll always remember it. You know because just of the time of everything that was going on with me, it was just another another hit. It just felt like I was being hit quite a few times at the time. But no, I'm really, really glad you've come on to share share your journey in healthcare, even though you know it's not a great one. But it it happened, and this is why I think because most of my listeners, I believe, work in healthcare, it's kind of that reminder that yes, we may see injuries like this, yes, we may see traumas, yes, we have patients every day, but this is their life, and what we yeah. say and what we do matters, and what we say and what we do, they remember, and how we make people feel. Yeah they don't forget and somebody made you feel a certain way and that is what has stayed with you but equally like you've said the kindness and the support and you I'm sure you remember people making you feel valued and mm. important and cared for and like you mattered to them and because I guarantee those nurses and other people that cared for you would have gone home thinking of you and yeah. worrying about you and hope yeah. still still there in the oh, absolutely absolutely you know and I still I there's times that pass now and I still wonder what they're up to I still think you know I wonder if they're still in healthcare and things like that so it certainly isn't forgotten on my part but it's like anything you know if you you do a job long enough you, you do it does creep in especially when you're tired and you know bits and bobs you might say something a little bit that you wouldn't have done if you wasn't tired but we're all humans and we all make mistakes but I think sometimes it's too much is put on to nurses you know there's a lot of people that run a hospital it's not just the nurses you know but all the blame seems oh it's the nurses you know or the nurses not doing that and I disagree I think the nurses are doing the job lot and everyone else is coming in doing bits and bobs and then you know taking a lot of credit for uh for what's going on on the wards but everyone knows full well that the sister's running that ward and I soon learned that when I turned up on there it was not the doctor's so me and Ralph have just had a little break and he would just like to confirm that he did not mean to say at the start that he is pleasured. Ralph, yeah, I just blame it on the brain damage or something. I had a brain fart. I meant to say it's my pleasure. Let's I don't want to get strung up. So, yeah, let's get that one clear. 
Good, right, we laugh. Okay, so now we've clarified that you're not pleasured. Um, I... <laughs> it's always up for debate. It's always up for debate. I just wanted to ask you, and I know we obviously just quickly spoke about this, but you're really open about your mental health, and that is something yeah. that I'm really passionate about, about being open about mental health and changing the stigma or ending the stigma, shall I say. Um, so are you happy just to share with me and the listeners? What, Definitely. Yep. Yeah, how, however you All want to frame the it. Crannies, anything you want to know. Yeah. So, I mean, what, uh, I mean, have you got a diagnosis? When yeah. So I've got, I've got complex post-traumatic stress um, and I've got specifically EUPD, which is emotionally unstable personality disorder, but it's also it's kind of known as, um, you know, a little segment of borderline personality disorder. Um, the psychiatrist has mentioned that I've showed antisocial behavior disorder traits, although I disagree slightly with that diagnosis, um, purely on the fact that, I mean, I'm not obviously a healthcare professional, but from my understanding, someone with antisocial personality disorder is more someone along the lines of a sociopath or a psychopath, um, just on some form of that spectrum, you know, you could be low, you could be high. And I, and I, I do feel empathy for others. So that's on that basis, you know, I, I disagree with that, but the rest of it, certainly I, I completely agree because my head's just like a, a fried egg. I was going to say, do you mind just sharing what your symptoms are and how, yeah, just what your symptoms are? Yeah. So, I mean, I went for, um, years and years with not accepting that there was anything wrong with me so these diagnoses have only come around in the sort of the last 18 months or so um prior to that i generally blamed everyone else and i thought if people left me alone nothing would happen because what was happening is my anger and rage was just unbelievable you know i would explode over the smallest of things i would react badly i would overreact just get caught in the red mist and nothing else would matter you know um and I went on for that for years with, you know, if people just left me alone or, you know, didn't give me any trouble, there wouldn't be any trouble. And looking back now, I realized that actually non-verbally wise, I was probably approaching things aggressively. Um, my, my tone, the way I was speaking was off the bat aggressive because I was mistrusting of people. I was suspicious. I was almost stuck in uh, fight or flight mode and survival mode. And when I got into a stress situation, there was nothing that I would not do to get out of it you know, it'd be as simple as that. And and as it manifested itself, it was generally attack because attack is the best form of defense, as they say. Um, and I think a lot of it was out of fear, you know, because I was stuck in that fight or flight sort of um, emotions. And a lot of the times, you know, when if an animal's scared, it will attack because it, 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 I think deep down, I was just scared really. And that was an emotion that was manifesting itself. So for that period of time, and it was quite a while, I went for, blaming everyone else, not really thinking I had a problem, thinking it was kind of to do with the lifestyle I was living at the time, et cetera. Any old excuse that it wasn't my fault and nothing to do with me. And then I got to a point um, after I'd been, you know, met my wife and we'd been together for a while and I sort of opened up with her. And I really started to reflect on my life and um, different events that happened, different traumatic situations. And the reality really hit me hard. And I, I realized that I'd actually lived quite a lie for many years because what I believed was my life and how my life was, it wasn't. And all this just hit me at once. And it sent me into a manic state of depression, um, which resulted in me trying to commit suicide uh, because I just felt that there was, there was no avenue to turn. I mean, I tried to reach out for help and I'd just been turned away. You know, I'd paid privately for things like counseling and those kind of services. Again, um, didn't get anywhere with them positively. And I, it, was, it took four occasions of reaching out for help before I actually got any help. And it actually took quite a big event um, that, you know, has affected my life um, and affected others, unfortunately, uh, for me to get any help. Um, so that's where I'm kind of at with it now. And, I've, you know, I've, I've, in between these periods, they did have me on some kind of medications in between. They've had me on metazapine, um, amitriptyline, and most recently they had me on paroxetine. Um, but I don't agree with any of them. I don't like them. My dreams become extremely violent. Um, and it just makes me anxious and on edge. And, you know, a lot of, I don't remember dreams. That's another massive symptom of mine. It's just black. 
And the only time I remember is if it's a nightmare and, you know, I, I just don't remember anything. It's just, but I wake up with these emotions in the morning. I feel anxious. I feel aggressive. I feel on edge. I feel, you know, mistrusting. So whatever I'm dreaming about is obviously affecting me, but in a subconscious way. Um, so they were probably the main symptoms. And, you know, I was very argumentative, just no one was right, but me, it was just, I was just so black and white so so black and white that i just couldn't see her out of this tunnel and when i looked back on this and thought christ you know a lot of these situations i'd brought on myself and i realized that things that the traumatic events that had happened to me in my life were probably worse than what i'd given them credit for and it just hit me at once and you know i was just so depressed and it ended up with me trying to walk into uh, oncoming traffic uh, i left the house one night without my phone in the middle of winter in a t-shirt and some like, pajama bottoms and that was it you know and i just tried to uh walk into traffic, got clipped by a car and ended up getting arrested. Um, and subsequently they had no room for me. So they released me because they didn't have enough room at the hospital to give me an assessment. So I got released and that was that. Um, and that was just one occasion where I tried to get help and, 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 you know, it fell on deaf ears, but that happened four times, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's just it's just so hard to hear that when it came to your physical health you had this amazing experience and you can't praise you know the nurses and the team enough but then when your mental health you know you needed that support and you tried and tried and tried you, you it just wasn't there yeah I mean that is completely so contrasting I, I couldn't describe it to you I mean I went through a period of of drug addiction after those injuries actually um and that ended you know with me sort of taking 15 or 16 tramadol in one go 50 milligram tablets um so that was the first real I, I look back on that now and I think was that a suicide attempt and I think it was at the point I was so low then as well that I didn't really care either way I was just kind of I'd been through so much and I'd overcome so much and everyone had such admiration about what I'd done except for me and it felt like I wanted to see how far I can push my body, as selfish as that sounds, because all the girls and the guys had worked so hard to keep me alive. And now it was me now trying to push my body and see how far I was, would, would go. And I had the mindset that if I die, I die. You know, I don't care. Um, and yeah, bits and bobs have creeped in, you know, sort of along the years and until a couple of years ago, 18 months ago, that uh, a massive event happened and I actually started receiving help and now I'm on medication. Um, it was, I was so frustrated. I was trying to get help here, there and everywhere. And everyone was saying no, and I didn't know what to do anymore. And that's what led to it. Um, you know, and I just think the difference between ICU care and general hospital care and the mental health side of thing is night and day. And I don't know whether that's to do with the funding or anything else but it is literally night and day, the difference. It's just incredible. Mm. It really is a, a, a bridge that needs to be, you know, a gap that needs to be bridged sort of as sooner rather than later because we're losing so many people from suicides and, you know, reckless behaviour. I mean, at the end of the day, if you've got someone out there with a mental illness or a mental condition, sometimes it isn't safe. That's just the realities of it. And I phoned these people up on the last occasion, uh, the healthcare professionals, and I said, listen, I'm at a stage now that I'm either going to kill someone else, myself, or both. And they sent a letter out saying they couldn't help me, et cetera, et cetera. And then lo and behold, this incident happened. And, you know, the rest, the rest is history. It was a, a, a negative event. Um, but I had literally said a matter of weeks before, I need help. And I was just turned away. And even after saying something like that, something so bold, I said, listen, I'm not playing around. I said, I know you might get a lot of people on here that say, I'm going to commit suicide and they're not serious. And I, I said to him, I said, look, I don't give a shit. I literally do not care anymore. You know, I'm at this point and I still got nowhere. And I thought, you know, if that doesn't get you help, I just thought, what will? And I was just at despair. And can I just confirm? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I do know the answer to this based on kind of the way you've been articulating all of this. But the incident that happened, it's something that you're not ready or comfortable to share. It's something obviously quite traumatic yeah obviously so you know i can't speak on it too much at the moment because actually it's still quite um you know open and raw and things like that but it it was uh involved criminality um you know and it involved um you know me getting into a little little bit of little bit of bother really um but without that i wouldn't have got the help that i received 
Um, it's, it's nothing too major, you know, no one was seriously injured or, or, or anything, thank God, thankfully. But, um, you know, it took this huge, huge event um, that obviously would emotionally probably affect other people more than physically. Um, and it affected me so bad as well, you know, that I was just in tears, you know, I was, I was just broken down on the floor crying. I just, I'd given up, you know, um, given up on life completely. But that's, that's why I talk about and say, you know, especially on my channel that, you know, we need to be heard because I was telling people and people just weren't listening to me. Mm. And, you know, in a way, now I look back on it and it, it kind of makes me feel a bit bitter towards the situation because I feel all of that could have been avoided if you one person I only just one person just to listen to me but all I kept going was no 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 and you know after a while I got to the point I thought you know what I don't I'm not going to ask anymore because you just keep saying no to me um and I just couldn't cope on my own uh, and you know like it, it just was a massive massive volcano eruption well I'm obviously very glad you're getting the support you need now and I know I've already said it but definitely speak to your psychiatrist. And this, as well as that coming from a professional point of view and a safeguarding point of view, you know, it's it's one of them where you're an adult, you have capacity to make your own decisions, you're aware of, like you say, your body, the medicine that you take and how it makes you feel. So I'm not worried that you're unsafe. But from no. a personal point of view, I recently had horrendous withdrawal symptoms just from a very frontline antidepressant. And yeah. I'm still in shock now at how unwell. I, d- I did. I did as well. I cannot believe how unwell I felt. And I thought I w- mm. I'm, I'm a nurse, for God's sake. I thought I yeah. weaned myself effectively. I halved my dose and I had a quarter of a dose and then I just didn't have it. I, ra- I ran out and I thought, well, it's OK, because I cut my dose right down. Didn't what antidepressant was it, if you don't mind me asking? Sertraline. Sertraline. I thought it would be sertraline. Oh, um, my. I was but... so unwell. I was paranoid. I had, it was like I had a kidney infection, but I didn't, my, mm. the back pain, this weird shoulder pain, the migraines, nausea, just everything. I felt horrific. I had the exact same symptoms from when I didn't have quetiapine for three days. Really? And I honestly, yeah, it was horrendous. Completely relate to that. It felt like I was coming off crack. Yeah, it was absolutely, it was awful. Uh, you know, yeah, just, I was just out, out of commission. It, it just smashes you. So that again makes me sometimes think, you know, these drugs are so bloody powerful. Mm. Yeah, they're just, they are given out, you know, um, I won't say willy nilly because that, that would be an exaggeration, but they are sort of given out as sort of a first call of call, you know, if t- talking about it doesn't work or something like that. Mm. There's not really any other therapies that are offered before. I was certainly in my case that I was offered an antidepressant. And I just feel like sometimes it's just a case of like putting a bandaid on it. Do you know what I mean? Put a plaster on it rather than yeah. get into the root cause of the issue. Um, but they're, they're, they're extremely powerful. And I just would urge anyone who is looking at embarking down that road is don't discount it completely because sometimes it is needed. And I believe it is needed in my case, but alongside therapy, mm. but pay caution to it because it's easy to get caught in the trap. You would be surprised. Like you say, you know, you think you're on a little antidepressant, you know, and all that, it grips you. It absolutely yeah. grips you. And that's the thing. If if you need it and you can function on it and you feel well on it, don't get into that trap of like, oh, I feel great. I'm going to stop taking it. You feel great yeah. because you're taking it. And I've said it in a previous yeah. episode, and I'll say it again. You would never say to a diabetic who's feeling well because they take insulin. Stop taking your oh, insulin. Stop taking your insulin. You're all right now. You would I mean, the thing what don't, people don't forget, uh, don't remember as well is sort of that a lot of these drugs take four to six weeks to reach, you know, maximum plasma levels in the blood. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to give it a chance. You can't, you know, think, oh, I, I'm feeling good now, because if you start tapering off and the half-life decreasing, 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 you know, it's going to take you even longer to build that back up to a comfortable level for you. So I think people do... I think it's a little bit uneducational. Like I said, I think that it's given out quite quickly, but I don't think it's really educated enough on the use of the drugs, how to use them properly and the importance of using them properly. No, I agree. There needs to be more education around it rather than, oh, let's get you on an antidepressant. You might not be on it forever. It's not a big deal. There there should be Mm. a bigger... Yeah, There's got to always be an end goal for me. You know, it can't just be, well... Here's, here's, I don't know, say like metazapine. Okay, great. Now, you know, there's still got to be an end sort of game plan, really, because even if the metazapine helps you and you feel good, you feel better, 
if you want to stay on them for the rest of your life, that's that's your decision. There's no one can criticize you for it because that's your call. But for me, it's kind of like it's just masked something. Yeah, that might have made you happy, but let's get to the root cause. Let's you know, let's explore other trauma, um, you know, treatments, and let's let's see what's what's causing the, the actual problem. And in some cases, if it's like you know the old old saying, a chemical imbalance, then that may well be what you need. But it might not always be the case, and you may end up on a medication that really you don't necessarily need to be on. There probably is a better alternative. Well, as you've brought that up, and you have mentioned having therapy, and again, that is something I'm a huge advocate for, having had a lot of therapy myself. Um, yeah. And you're saying about like the root cause and. You, you did mention earlier, and I haven't gone into it too much yet, but you said about your dad being too drunk to come and see you mm. for the first two days in ITU. Yeah. Um, and I think y- yourself, having gone through a lot of therapy, you'll agree with me that a lot of people's issues, traumas, mental health, stems from childhood trauma. Absolutely. And I'm just Absolutely. wondering if you're happy to talk a little bit more either about, um, uh, maybe just about therapy itself and the benefits of it because I think people think you just sit and chat to to a stranger for 55 quid an hour but you'll be able to articulate it in a really helpful way well I'll be able to talk about what I've done so far so I'm actually on a waiting list and I should be starting CBT within the next two weeks however the only other counseling that I've actually had thus far is traditional counseling and I now have a care coordinator where I can meet and, um, you know, we discuss certain things, medication reviews, et cetera, et cetera. For me, the counselling didn't work. Um, not at all. I didn't find it helpful in the slightest. I think it's a very person dependent thing. I don't think counselling is, is suitable for everyone. Um, it ended up me sort of, I paid privately for this, but it ended up me sort of speaking to the counsellors and they were just, jaw would just drop on the floor and they're like, you know, do you know what you've been to? I'd be like, that's why I'm here you know it wasn't a benefit to me I didn't leave and feel like there was a weight lifted because really I've never had an issue speaking about any of my my problems so to speak they just subconsciously affect me um it's not that I need to get them out and you know although it is cathartic to to sort of tell your side of things I accept what's happened's happened and I think I'm more bitter and resentful about it and that's what I want to let go of I can't change what has happened I can't change you know what was done but I can try and change how I feel about it in the future. And that's the kind of where I'm at with it. But I never felt counselling did that for me because I was just relaying the story and I've, I've never had an issue with that. It's, it's much deeper. So I'm hopeful for the CBT. Um, if that is obviously still unsuccessful, then I should be getting EMDR as well. Mm-hmm. So I'll be trialing that, which is rapid eye movement. Um, so hopefully, and then I'm even considering hypnosis and things like that, you know, everything is open. I'm willing to try it because I'm at that point that it's, it's make or break, you know, and I'm not going to turn anything down. I've opened my sort of acceptance and I've removed all my stigmas from everything. Like, I don't want to do medication or you don't want to do therapy. I've taken all of them away and I'm starting afresh on a blank canvas. And so I'm willing to try anything. So I won't give up until I've exhausted every single option that is available to me now. And I think I owe that to my family because they've been through so much with me. You know, they've been on this journey with me, um, you know, and they've, they've suffered, you know, and that's another thing that doesn't get spoken about. Um, but without my wife's support, I wouldn't be here again. I'd, I'd be dead, you know. Um, so that really needs to be acknowledged because mental health has such a ripple effect it's almost like I remember with my father when I was younger um, and I, he, you know, he could walk in a room with a hundred people and change the atmosphere. And I think mental health is very much like that because if I'm tetchy, my wife's tetchy and then she's worried about what I'm going to do, you know? So it's something that re- seldom gets spoken about, but I think it's actually very important because it's not just my journey. It's my whole family. Um, so, you know, I just, I'll just shout out to them because I'm so grateful, you know, that they've actually stuck by me for all this. Not many would. Yeah. And do you know what that that is true? And I can again completely relate to that because me and my partner broke up for a little while, and it was because I couldn't I couldn't stick through it anymore. I couldn't. He yeah. lost his dad. He was depressed, but his depression came out as anger and yeah. rage and aggression, and I just couldn't I couldn't stand by him. And yeah, luckily, yeah, it's know, understandable. For us, for us, that worked, and we're in a really good place now. And you know, we've both had various help in different ways, and 
but yeah it's you sound very lucky and like you've got a really good family and why well I have I mean I, I haven't got a good family at all I've got um my my family that I've created is is brilliant yeah. and you know I can't I can't speak highly enough of them but other than that you know my family's very um very limited I don't I have some strained interactions with my mother's mother and father but other than that um I, you know I don't I don't have any other family yeah. um I've got I've got a brother um but yeah that's it so it's literally it's I can count on one hand you know it's uh, it's so so small so this is my unit now um and you know I just want to just want to be better for them really I think you know because like you say you know that worked for you the the, the little bit of separation in the time um and everyone's different but you know it's always just got I think it's so partnerships are so hard to work but you have to be open when it comes to mental health and yeah. you have to know that you've got to you're going to be on a journey and if if that journey's too much for you and if my wife said this journey's too much for her I can't criticize her for that because it's so so difficult you know yeah. and I've said to her before I said that if the time ever comes that I'm affecting the family dynamic tell me because I will leave because mm -hmm. I love them so much that I would do anything for them and if the best for them means it doesn't involve me I'm gone you know it's as easy easy as decision as that for me um but you know not as easy for others sometimes but yeah. it's relationships they need to be worked at don't they so yeah and I think that's the difference isn't it it's that you're open and you're on that journey whereas me and Sam we were in our early 20s and just yeah. any self-awareness myself included as well I didn't realize that I wasn't setting boundaries I wasn't there's all yeah it was an absolute it's hindsight hindsight as I say as a mother in it um you know you look you can look back at things now and think you know I would have done this would have done that and actually I think sometimes you look back and you understand things more than what you did at the time but I try not to look back too much because I'd end up in tears um you know with well I could have done that could have done this but I wouldn't change it really because I wouldn't be where I am today and I've had to go through some suffering but you know, for, for my wife and my children, it's, it's worth it tenfold and I'll do it again. Thank you so much to Ralph for coming on and being so lovely and so open about his experience in healthcare. And thank you so much for listening, if you have. <laughs> Please remember to subscribe, rate and review on whatever platform you listen to the Mad Moon podcast on. It does make a really big difference. And don't forget, as always, check out the show notes for helplines, websites. You can utilise these or give them to a colleague or a loved one, anyone who you think might need um, some support at the moment. And if you don't already, follow me on Instagram at the Mad Moon Podcast. Get in touch via email, themadmoonpodcast at gmail.com. You can also catch episodes of the Mad Moon Podcast every Saturday at First Choice Radio at one o'clock. So stay safe, everybody, and I'll see you next week when I speak to another lovely guest. <laughs>